Wasn't that children's choir awesome? I don't think I've ever heard a more wonderful children's choir than that one. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. I think I could even sing with Carrie leading. Man, I was wondering how they had so much enthusiasm, and then I just looked to the side, and I realized, you know, this is a, a, a director that brings enthusiasm out. And then the accompanist, have mercy. I could... <laughs> I watched him do something that was sort of a, a, an enigma to me because he was watching her the whole time he was playing, and every once in a while he'd turn the page. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why is he turning the page? He's not looking at the music. But anyway, I was tremendously blessed by that, and I'm looking forward to the fact that they're doing it again, second service. So I'm going to get to, and I hope you stay by because we're doing two different sermons in our series on Revelation. I'd like to have one more prayer before we begin. Lord Jesus, we're looking for you in your book, and in particular in this one, the book of Revelation. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us and stir our hearts with fresh love and appreciation for you. Lord Jesus, uh, there have been a lot of sort of historic kind of um, approaches to these prophetic books, but I'm asking you to show us ways to personalize them right now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you about Johnny Watkins. Johnny Watkins and his wife, Anne, invited people to their home every spring from our church when we were living in Grand Junction, Colorado. I was in fifth grade, and the Watkins home would always be a spring uh, strawberry shortcake feed, and so the church was all invited to come to that. And uh, we look forward to this particular spring because Johnny's wife, Ann, made the shortcake and they were always the first strawberries of the season and it was always just a real high time for us. Now, Johnny was good friends with a doctor in our church whose name was Ward. And Ward and Johnny had sort of an interesting thing going on. They liked to play practical jokes on each other even though they were good friends. Well, this particular story, uh, they were having the strawberry shortcake feed, and as they were preparing to hand out the shortcake, because Johnny was delivering it on trays, Johnny went into the back room, and instead of putting whipping cream on Ward's shortcake, he put shaving cream. It made it look real nice and curly cue, a little tip on the top. And everybody else got the real deal. And as they were uh, handed out, Ward began to eat his. And of course, immediately the first bite just, you know, gave him the urge to regurge. But he listened to everybody else and they were saying, oh, Ann, it is so good. We look forward to it every year. And what did you do with the whipping cream? Is it vanilla or cinnamon? What's the extra touch you've put in the whipping cream? And Ward, here, here's all these people people complimenting Ann on the wonderful shortcake, and he thinks, I don't know, it must be something wrong with my taste buds, because this sure doesn't taste good to me, but I don't want to rain on the parade, so he ate the whole thing, <laughs> ate the whole thing. And that night, after the whole thing was over, in the middle of the night, Ward woke up, Dr. Stute woke up with the most horrible indigestion. And he decided he was going to call Johnny in the middle of the night. And he called Johnny's house and he said, Johnny, sorry to call you so late, but I, I am feeling sicker than a dog and I'm quite certain it's something that I ate. Has anybody else commented to you about the whipping cream on the shortcake? And Johnny said, I don't think anybody would have contacted me because you're the only one that had shaving cream. <laughs> so he kind of got him, right? 
Um, and Dr. Stute decided he would probably survive even though he would blow bubbles for the rest of the night. <laughs> now, <clears throat> the whipping cream looked like something it wasn't. And we're going to be taking a look here at Revelation 3 and a group of people who look like something there aren't. Let's look here in Revelation 3, verses 14 and 15. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So, apparently, God prefers that we would be hot, but if we're not hot, spiritually speaking, he would prefer that we would be cold as opposed to being lukewarm. He says to this church called the Laodicean church, you're lukewarm. You're neither cold or hot. I wish you were one or the other. Now, why would God prefer that we would actually be cold over being warm? Because if you think about it, warm sort of seems like it would be a better place. But I think if you've been cold, you realize when you're cold, you want to get hot. When you're cold, you're not comfortable remaining cold. If you're warm, you're not necessarily thinking that there's any change necessary. You're quite happy with the way things are. And Jesus says, I wish you were one or the other. How does he feel about lukewarm? Well, let's keep reading. Revelation 3, verse 16 says it this way. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm, this is my paraphrase, but I think what God is saying, what Jesus is saying here to the lukewarm believers is, you make me want to puke. You make me want to throw up. You give me the urge to regurge. Why would he say that? A lukewarm church makes God sick. Why? Well, keep reading with me. Verse 17 says, You say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that actually you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They think they're okay. They think they don't need anything. Now, this part of the Laodicean message, we're going to refer to as the rebuke. This is not high compliments. This is not God giving kudos to the church. He's saying, this is a rebuke. Hear me carefully. You're not what I want you to be. In fact, what you are makes me sick to my stomach. This is the rebuke to the church of Laodicea. Now, in order to have a church known as Laodicea, and by the way, uh, the churches that are listed here in Revelation 3 and in 2 are, are symbolic of the church as we come in on the close of earth's history. And so there's a message in this for us as well. But in order to have a Laodicean church, in order for it to be called Laodicean or lukewarm, more than 50% of the members would have to be lukewarm because you would call it whatever the majority are. If the minority was lukewarm, it wouldn't be called a lukewarm church. So the majority of the believers in this church that's represented by Laodicea are lukewarm. And I'd like to suggest, and I believe it's true, that this is the case for every denomination around the planet. My denomination, I happen to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, but not, I'm not alone. In all of the churches, all the denominations around the planet, the problem as we come into the close of Earth's history is that the majority of believers are lukewarm. 
This is the condition of the church just before Jesus comes. Now, what is lukewarm? Margie was talking with the kids a few minutes ago, and we uh, talked about the fact that lukewarm is a combination of hot and cold. Uh, if, if the faucet is, is, is plumbed properly, uh, then the faucet handle on the left would be hot, and if it was on the right, it would be cold, and if it's plumbed wrongly, well, you know, have you ever been in a shower where, you know, it was a guest or something, and you didn't know, and it was that opposite, and you went to get a little more hot or a little more cold, and all of a sudden, you know, you're either scalded or you're frozen, and uh, if you're singing in the shower, you strike a note higher at that point, um, but lukewarm is a combination of hot and cold, a combination so now, how could you have people who are a combination of hot and cold? What would that look like? Well, in Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes lukewarm religious teachers, leaders, and he calls them hypocrites. And I want to show you here in Matthew, uh, did I say Luke? I meant Matthew 23. Anyway, in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus says, woe to you teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you are hypocrites. Well, what's a hypocrite? Keep reading. You are like whitewashed tombs. You actually look beautiful on the outside. The tomb is really good looking. There's marble. There's all kinds of engraving. It looks pretty nice. But on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. These are people who search the scriptures Interestingly enough, he's talking to church leaders. He's talking to people. He said to them at one point, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me, and yet you do not come to me that you might have life. If he was speaking to my subculture, he might say something like this. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have 28 fundamental beliefs. But these are they which testify of me, and yet you're not coming to me that you might find life. These people that he's talking to, they return tithes and offerings. They went to church on Saturday. They put their kids in Christian education. They had a prophetic gift and a health message, and they did family worship this group of people that he's talking to. He says, you guys look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You are rotten. The whipping cream wasn't really whipping cream. It looked good. It was shaving cream. It looked good on the outside, but actually it was not what it looked like, and that's what he's saying to the lukewarm people. He's saying, you go through the motions, but your heart is not there with me. Go through the motions. Um, you are religious, but you're not spiritual. Are you aware of the difference between being religious and being spiritual? There's a big difference. Uh, the people who are religious know the rules, but the people who are spiritual know the ruler. And when you know the ruler, the rules will be applied in your life. So it's not like the rules don't matter. But if you don't know the ruler and you just know the rules, well, then you're religious. Um, the people who are religious, they know the laws, but they don't know the Lord. They know the facts, but they don't know the friend. People who are religious, they have weekly time for church, but the people who are spiritual have daily time for Jesus. The people who are religious love to argue theology, 
The people who are spiritual love to focus on the matchless charms of Christ. The people who are simply religious are critical often and judgmental usually. Uh, people who are spiritual tend to be positive and redemptive. Uh, people who are religious tend to be exclusive. It's us and them. People who are spiritual are looking to enlarge the community of believers. They want to bring more instead of us or them. It's let's all come together. Uh, people who are merely religious tend to be high on the standards, but low on love and knowing Jesus. Jesus said to this group of Laodiceans, talking to us even now today and around the world and all denominations, you're lukewarm. You're religious. Most of you are religious. I wish you were spiritual. I wish you were hot. The condition you're in makes me want to throw up. Jesus revealed in the book of Revelation the condition of the church up until just before he comes. Something's going to happen just before he comes. But unfortunately, there are people who think that what needs to happen is we need to give the straight testimony. We need to call it like it is. We need to quit being fearful about stepping on people's toes. We need to hold the standards up and tell people to march with the standards, get with the program. You know, we want revival. Well, that's the wrong approach. When my dad was just a young preacher, he was preaching in that same little town where the shortcake had been served. Uh, he was there as the pastor, and they were doing a little study during the midweek meeting on the subject of revival. And the people in the uh, study said, you know, we really want to see revival happening in our church. And, and we think maybe um, if we got serious about following God that he could bring a revival into our midst. And so they said, <clears throat> let's do something. Let's show how serious we are about pursuing revival by upholding the standards. And one of the standards the people suggested that they uphold was let's not wear anything that's dazzling or bright or shiny or that could attract attention to us. Let's not have any jewelry among us. Well, my father was a young preacher, and he thought, well, I don't have to worry about that one because I don't have any jewelry. Uh, but then one day, as he was eating at the potluck, someone across the table from him said to him, Pastor Vinden, they said, what is that shiny item I see on your necktie? Well, he looked down at his necktie, and he said, um, that's a tie clasp. They said, well, why are you wearing it? Well, he said, I don't like to see my tie go into the soup or the spaghetti sauce. They said, well, it looks a little shiny, a little glittery, a little dazzly. I thought you were interested in revival. And my dad thought, well, you know, I don't want to be a stumbling block on the path to revival. And so he took off his tie clasp, and lo and behold, his ties began to fall into the soup and into the spaghetti sauce. And, and he thought, this isn't working. But, you know, if this is the price I have to pay for revival, then, you know, I'll just get my ties dry cleaned or whatever it takes. And um, then one day he was in my mom in the restroom in the, in the bathroom of our home. And he noticed on the counter next to the sink there were bobby pins. Do they still make bobby pins? Bobby pins. And he thought, oh, wow. I wonder. And he picked up a bobby pin and he slid it over his tie. Well, it worked. It didn't fall forward. And he thought, it's not shiny. It's not glittery. You know, it's functional. 
And um, then he discovered that she had different colors of bobby pins. And so if he had a blue tie, he put on a blue bobby pin. He had a red tie, put on a red bobby pin. And life was going pretty good for him now. He's, you know, gotten the victory over the shiny, dazzly, glittery stuff. You know, he's not going to hold up revival and he's going to keep his tie out of the soup. And then one day someone at the potluck said to him, Pastor Vinan, what is that on your tie? Well, he said he looked down and he said he had this moment of sort of religious fervor, <laughs> kind of a sort of piety that just welled up within him. And he said, well, it's a bobby pin. And they said, why would you wear a bobby pin? Oh, he said, because I'm all for revival, you know. And, 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 and then he said he realized that when Jesus said about that one man, the latter state of that man was worse than the first, that he qualified. Now, because he's so proud of the fact that he's not wearing any jewelry, that he realized the worse condition he was in than he'd been before. See, I'm not saying we should lower the standards, but trying to raise external standards is not what brings about revival. In fact, external, focusing on externals is the very problem of Laodicea. They are not concerned about the inside of the cup. They're only looking at the outside of the cup. So if we make more rules and we abide by them, if we don't applaud in church, if we don't, you know, if we don't ordain women, if we don't do all these different rules that we come up with, then maybe we can have revival. But that's not what brings on revival. Revival is something that comes from the inside and it comes as a result of the working of the Holy Spirit, which comes as a result of you and I spending more and more time with the Jesus of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> now, in Matthew 23, I'm going to read verses 25 and 26 one more time. Woe to you, Pharisees, and you religious leaders, you're hypocrites. You are so careful to polish the outside of the cup, but the inside is foul with extortion and greed. Now notice what he says. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup. Then the whole cup will be clean. Now, this leads us to the good news to the church of Laodicea. Because God never gives a rebuke without also giving us counsel. He gives us good news. He says, here's the problem, here's the prescription. Here's the problem, here's the remedy. So here's the problem with Laodicea. You're focusing on externals. You don't have it in your heart. Here's the counsel. So now let's see the counsel that he gives in Revelation 3, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, students of biblical prophecy understand that in prophetic literature, gold is used as a symbol to represent faith and love. This is kind of old stuff probably for most of you. Gold represents faith and love. So one of the things that his counsel includes is you need to get from me faith and love. All right? Uh, also in prophetic literature, white robes represent the righteousness of Christ the righteousness of Jesus covering us so that as God looks at us, he sees us as though we have never sinned. His righteousness covering us, okay? That's the symbol there. And then the ISAB represents spiritual discernment, and he says it's brought to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we were to summarize the counsel to the church of Laodicea, he's basically saying, here's what you need. Here's what you need. You need faith and love, which comes from me, 
You need righteousness, my righteousness, not yours, not external. You need my righteousness, and you need discernment, spiritual eyesight. You need that, and it all comes from us, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. It comes from us. In other words, Jesus' counsel is, you guys need a relationship with me. You don't just need to know the rules. You need to know the ruler. And I'm anxious to be friends. I don't want you to just focus on the facts. I want to have a friendship with you. And that's the counsel to the church of Laodicea. Now, when Jesus comes the second time, there's not going to be any such thing as a lukewarm group of people left. I think we're all aware of the fact that when Jesus comes, there are only two groups of people, not three. Right now, there are three. But when he comes, there's only two. When he comes, there's only the hot and the cold. There's only the righteous and the wicked, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goat, the wise and the foolish, just two groups. So just before he comes, something happens to the middle group. They disappear. Something happens to them. When I was just a little kid, my grandfather taught a little nursery rhyme, and it went like this. There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. You know the verse probably too. What happens just before Jesus comes, what happens to the middle group? It polarizes. The middle group goes one way or the other. They either become very, very hot or they become very, very cold. But they're no longer in the middle. What happens that causes this? Well, God moves out and picks up speed, and we're told that the final movements are going to be rapid ones. There comes a time in our world, and I believe we're getting closer and closer to it, there comes a time in our world when Jesus waits no longer. He waits no longer, and I believe it is based on world conditions. I do. I remember hearing Billy Graham once say, if Jesus doesn't come soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because we think that they were bad. Whoa, we are way worse. We're getting way worse, he was suggesting. Things are not as good even, you know. Well, there comes a point where world conditions are such that if he doesn't come soon, there'll be nobody left to come for because we will self-implode. We will self-destruct. We're on a pathway to destruction. Apart from Jesus, destruction is the inevitable downward turn that all humanity takes, and we're accelerating on that path right now. And anybody who has their eyes halfway open or their ears half hearing realizes that in this world we're living in right now this polarization is taking place rapidly if you had told me about the way things would be right now two and a half years ago i wouldn't have believed you i would have said you're thinking science fiction you're thinking you watch too many movies no 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 the world's not going to come to a complete standstill and then turn around a whole paradigm shift and start going in a different direction no that's not going to happen and no they're not going to be teaching that kind of garbage in the public school system that would never happen no they won't no we won't no we no you would have told me that two or a half three years ago i would have said that's not going to happen but in the last two or three years we have seen our world polarizing like it's never polarized before groups are just whoof whoof you can see them 
the good little girl is becoming gooder and gooder. The bad little girl is becoming badder and badder with the curl, you know. I mean, that's what we're seeing happen. I, I would suggest that we have signs of the closeness of the return of Jesus currently that, that make the sun, moon, and stars look like antiques. That's what I think. Anyway, <clears throat> what happens is God pulls out all the stops. Romans 9.28 says it this way. He will finish the work. He will cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as God finishes the work, this polarization takes place and the lukewarm disappear. The lukewarm disappear. Now, how does this happen? Well, when the lukewarm disappear... The message of Jesus and his righteousness will be rising to the top. And the result will be what we would refer to as a true remnant church. Now, I had a very interesting experience one time. I was at a camp meeting, a Seventh-day Adventist camp meeting in SoCal, California. H.M.S. Richard Sr., the Voice of Prophecy speaker and founder of the Voice of Prophecy ministry, was speaking. And he was speaking to about three or 4,000 people uh, who were primarily from my subculture, Seventh-day Adventists. And he said something that only Richards could have said and got away with. He said, the majority of the remnant church are not here, they're out there. That's what he said. And he said, you might think I'm wrong, but I'm right anyway. That's what he said. God has a remnant around the world in every denomination. He's got a remnant. And just before Jesus comes, something's going to happen. And this remnant church is going to be consistent doctrinally as well as experientially. Now, if all I am is a part of a doctrinal remnant church, that's not the whole deal. That's not the real remnant yet. Just being correct in my theology doesn't make me part of the remnant. It's an experience as well. It's more than head knowledge. It's a hard experience. Uh, in John 4, 23, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers, and Richards was referring to true worshipers in all denominations around the world, when the true worshipers are going to end up worshiping the Father, notice, in spirit and in truth. They have it in two places. They have it here as well as here. It's not enough to have it here if I don't have the experience. We can talk about righteousness by faith in Christ alone as a theory till the cows come home. It makes no difference. I need to have the experience. The privilege of having an experience with Jesus is even more significant than knowing the theory. And there's coming a time, as he said to the woman at the well, when God's going to see people who have it in both places. You know, if you're in a rowboat and you have two oars, you're only going to go in circles if you put one oar in the water. Just going to go in circles. You have to have both oars in the water. So spirit represents heart. Truth represents mind. And Jesus is saying, well, that's what we're looking for. That's what the Trinity is looking for. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, as the Laodicean church polarizes, something is causing the polarization. Sometimes it's referred to as a shaking a shaking, and that goes back to the days when the farmers would shake their, they would sift their wheat by, they'd put the wheat in the basket, and they would shake it together, and as they shook the wheat in the basket, the chaff would separate from the kernel. 
And because the kernel was heavier than the chaff, the kernel would go to the bottom of the basket, the chaff would go to the top, and then on a windy day, they would throw the contents of the, of the basket straight up in the air, the wind would blow the light chaff off and leave the kernel, and so the shaking time, this is a metaphor, it's in scripture, uh, it, this is a metaphor for uh, dividing into two groups. Now, there's a shaking that takes place in the churches. And it's very interesting, this little comment written in a little book called The Early Writings, page 270, that tells us what causes the shaking. The shaking, referring to the thing I just told you about, the polarization that's going on in churches around the world in all denominations. Notice what it says. The shaking is brought on by the straight testimony which is called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. Do you remember what the counsel was? The counsel was you need a personal relationship with me. You need my righteousness you need faith and love. You need the ISAB of the Holy Spirit. You need a personal relationship with me. Now, that boggles my mind because this says that the, the, the shaking is brought on not by everybody getting rid of their tie clasps. The shaking is brought on by the council to the church of Laodicea, and the council was you need Jesus. Why would churches get shook up over a message um, emphasizing Jesus? Doesn't that just seem like an like a oxymoron? Why would churches get upset? Why would church members get upset and divided over a message that says we need more Jesus? I can only think of one reason why people would get upset over that kind of message. It would be if they had been religious and not spiritual. It would be because they hadn't really been spending personal time alone with Jesus. And to be told that that's where the rubber meets the road to someone who's not doing that is either going to cause them to say, whoa, wake up, I need more of him, or don't tell me I'm not a Christian. Don't tell me I don't have it together. I'm part of the remnant. I return tithes and offerings. I go to church on the right day. I da 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 da. I I I I I don't tell me. I was pastoring a church that will remain unnamed at this point, <clears throat> and a number of the members of my congregation were retired pastors from my denomination. Several of them had retired from positions of leadership and influence around the world church, and uh, several of them were elders in my church. And I got a letter one day from, from, from this group of elders. They had signed the letter. I, I give them credit for signing it because many times these kind of letters are unsigned, but this one was signed. And they'd all signed it. There was about eight of them that had signed it. One of them had been vice president of the World Church. And, and anyway, they signed the letter. Now, it wasn't actually written to me. It was written to my boss, my conference president. But they had the courtesy of sending me a copy of what they sent him. And so I got to read it. This is what it said. They said, here at our church, remember I said it's going to be unnamed, here at our church, we're getting very tired of having all the sermons forever and always about Jesus. We would like some good old-fashioned doctrinal preaching for a change. Well, it made me sad, not because they were speaking that way about me. What made me sad would be that a group of my, a significant group of my church leaders didn't want to hear more about Jesus. They wanted to hear more about doctrine. Now, this is ironic because when we get the doctrines taught correctly, guess what? Jesus is all over them. But if they're saying, we don't want to hear about Jesus, we just want to hear doctrine, their version of doctrine leaves Jesus out. And it made my heart sad to think 
that they would be so uptight that they would write a letter of complaint. Well, my conference president, God bless him, he wrote them back, and he sent me a copy of what he wrote back. And this is what he wrote. I am praying for the day when every church in my region has the same problem yours has. <laughs> what was he saying? He was saying, we want Jesus to be the heart and center and core and pivotal theme of everything, including doctrine. But they were getting shaken up. Why? Because even though they had the facts, they didn't know the friend. And somehow, hearing the friend promoted week after week after week was rubbing them the wrong way. And this is what causes the shaking. People say, either they say, oh, hope for me. Hope. You mean to tell me that just keeping the rules isn't going to be the heart of the matter. Jesus wants a friendship with me and that if I will seek to know him as my friend, he will work on writing his law in my heart. He will produce his righteousness in me. He takes the burden of obedience and he produces that in me. Oh, give me hope. Thank you. I want to know a friend like that. You know, that's what one group goes, does that. By the way, the people who do that are usually what you'd call the, um, the publicans and sinners in the sanctuary. If you remember Jesus, the people who responded most to Jesus were the people who the righteous would have called the losers. These are the losers. But they're the ones that rallied around Jesus. And so as this message of Jesus, as the counsel to the church of Laodicea is given to the church of Laodicea, the people who've been struggling, flopping and failing, embrace a friendship with Jesus as the solution and they become more and more excited about him, and they can't keep quiet. And the people who have been trying to live their righteous lives without Jesus say, well, if that's the way they're going to be, I'm out of here. They're lowering the standards. They're letting all the riffraff in. They have riffraff. They're leading out in worship and songs of praise. I'm not going to be part of this church anymore. I'll find a church where we're all holy, you know. And so this division, this division happens. This division happens. It's the last thing that happens just before Jesus comes, actually. It's the last thing that happens. And I believe it's happening right now. And I believe it's happening in every denomination around the world, including my own. And I'm very excited about it because what's happening is Jesus is knocking at the heart. He's knocking at our hearts. Revelation 3, verse 20. Uh, Carl Hafner, a friend of mine, has a daughter whose name is Claire. And Claire Hafner, when she was just in fifth grade, said to her father, Daddy, he's a preacher, she said, Daddy, did I say fifth grade? I'm sorry, thank you, Margie. Yeah, when she was just five years old. When Claire was just five years old, she was a student in Margie's, when she was just five years old, she said, Daddy, would you read me the Bible? And Claire said, Cer certainly, uh, Carl said, certainly, Claire, what story would you like me to read? And she said, the whole Bible. <laughs> and he said, Claire, the Bible's a very large book. It would take a long time to read such a large book. She said, that's okay, I'm young, I have time, you know. And, and so Carl started reading the Bible, from cover to cover with a five-year-old, and she loved it. She just loved it, and it kept going year after year. He kept reading to her, reading it. Every day, they would read this Bible, and then he moved away from Walla Walla University, where he'd been the senior pastor, to Dayton, Ohio at the time, and he moved back there, uh, uh, and, um, and, and when she was in fifth grade, Carl sent me an email, and he said, you know, Claire and I are still reading the Bible together. He said, she has such a love for Scripture that she's begun 
paraphrasing the Bible herself. She's writing her own paraphrase, fifth grader of scripture. And he says, I just had to send you a copy of what Claire did with Revelation 3.20. So I want you to see what a fifth grader did with Revelation 3.20. You guys know, Marge, back off for just a second. You know, Revelation 3.20 is the one that says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears and opens the door, I'll open it and come in fellowship with him. All right. So now let's see what Claire wrote. Knock, knock. Who's there? Jesus. Jesus who? Jesus Christ. Oh, oh, really? And what do you want? Well, I'd like to come in and hang out with you. Have dinner, talk, no big agenda, just be friends. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. I'm still here knocking. Aren't you glad he's still knocking? Aren't you glad he hasn't given up on Laodiceans? Aren't you glad he hasn't written us off for being lukewarm, having it here but not having it here? Aren't you glad he's saying, we can fix this. We can be friends. This can get better. We can, we can talk. We can fellowship together. Well, you might say, when Jesus knocks on my heart's door, I'm a little nervous because I don't have anything to serve him. I am empty. I'm out. Good news. You don't have to worry. Many years ago in the Pacific Northwest, a little group of Seventh-day Adventists, not a group, a little family of Seventh-day Adventists were having vacation time. And they had come into a campground just a little ways from a town, but they'd gotten in there a Friday evening just in time to get their camp set up, but not enough time to get to the store and buy provisions, and they were out of food. But Dad said, not to worry, family, not to worry. We're going to go visit a Seventh-day Adventist church not too far from here tomorrow, and they always have potlucks to die for. We will have food that you won't believe, and we'll be okay, and then we'll get our provisions on Sunday. And so they go to church wearing their camping best, and as they're there, they are chagrined when the pastor announces that because of some problems they had had in their kitchen, the potluck for this Sabbath has been canceled. And the kids look at dad like, oh, great. That was a great idea. And he says, not to worry, kids, because these people are so hospitable. We're going to have more invitations to lunch at people's homes than we're going to know what to do with. We'll get filled up at somebody's house. Not to worry. And so they stayed out in the foyer as the people exited after the service, waiting for all of the invitations which weren't coming. And the kids are looking, and they're saying, we're getting hungry, Dad. You know, we're getting hungry. Dad says, hang in there, hang in there. And finally, a lady comes up to them, and she says, are you guys visitors? And they said, yeah. She goes, well, what brings you here? Well, we're camping, and we're staying at such and such a campground. Oh, she said, what's your campsite? Oh, they said, it's number 17. She said, great, I'm going to come for lunch. And the kids said, what is this? So they drive to their campsite, number 17, coming for lunch, and they're getting ready with nothing. He said, this lady, she's invited herself to lunch. We have nothing. He says, we have this one can of soup. Look, look, let's undo the can of soup. Let's put it in a pot. Let's put a bunch of water in it and make soup out of it, and, you know, we'll offer her something, you know? And so he and his wife are trying to turn a little can of soup into a bowl of, a little can of beans into a bowl of soup, and, and as they're doing so in their, little, in their little trailer, and the kids are complaining and belly aching, he looks out the window and he says oh my word the lady just drove in in a station wagon and it's got five people in it and that's not all six more cars just drove in behind her he says add more water to the soup and then he said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And they open up their trunks and they begin pulling out entrees and salads and desserts and fruits and drinks. And he says, dear, throw the soup down the drain. 
These people invited themselves, yes, but they brought everything with them. And when Jesus knocks on your heart, he says, you don't have to serve me. I'm here to serve you. And that's the good news of Revelation 3 and the message to the church of Laodicea. Listen to Buddy Hotelling sing about it. So he's saying, let's talk. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the encouragement you offer us in this book. Thank you for still wanting to be our friend. Thank you for knocking. And Lord, we want to open the door wide and say, please come in. Come in today. Come in every day. 
for Jesus' sake, amen.